Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I wrote this book and I became fascinated with the subject of Abraham breaking his father's idols because of a conversation with a 90-year-old friend of mine who told me that he didn't believe in God. He said to me, I don't let God get between me and my religion. I asked him if he had any memories at all of his Jewish education, and he told me that he had forgotten everything except for one thing, the first sentence that he learned in Hebrew, Avraham lo he'amin vapsilim. In translation, Abraham did not believe in idols. I must confess to you that ever since I was a child, that has been my favorite story. It is a story that does not show up at all in the Bible. You would think it would be in the book of Genesis. You would think that it would be there in order to explain for us exactly why it is that God chose Abraham, but in fact it's not in there, it's in the Midrash which I like to describe as Jewish fan fiction. It's a story that illuminates a gap in the Torah. In fact, we don't know why God chooses Avram, whose name will be changed to Abraham, as the first Jew. So the ancient rabbis come up with the following story. They imagine that Abraham's father, Terach, was in the idol business in Ur. And that is where Avram's childhood was located. Now, Ur is at uh, the southern end of the Fertile Crescent in what we would now call Iraq. And the story unfolds that Terach has this idol store. He has an entire chain of idol stores. Two weeks ago, I would have said they're called Gods or Us, but now I realize that That is a snarky reference to Toys R Us of blessed memory. (laughs) And his father goes on a business trip, and he leaves young Avram in charge of the merchandise. And so a man comes in and wants to buy an idol. And Avram asks him, what kind of god do you wish to buy? And he asks him how old he is, and the man says 50 or 60 years old, and Avram says, I can't believe that you would bow down to this thing which was made only today. And then a woman came in and she carried a bowl of fine flour and she said to Avram, here, offer this to the gods. And at that moment, Avram takes a stick, he breaks all of the idols, 
And he places the stick in the hand of the largest idol that he leaves intact. And his father comes back and says, what happened? And Abraham says, oh, dad, it was traumatic. I don't even want to talk about it. The, the idols got hungry. They started fighting over the food. And Terach says, listen to me. Uh, you know and I know and I know that you know that these idols, they don't speak, they don't feel, they don't get hungry. What are you talking about? And so Avram says, let your ears hear what your mouth is saying. That is the story that we know. By the way, there is a sequel to that story, which is an ugly, sad, tragic piece, which is that Terach hauls young Avram before King Nimrod, who puts him on trial for heresy against the gods, throws him into a fiery furnace, and instead Avram's brother Haran dies, and the whole thing is calculated to help us understand that this is how Avram's brother Haran dies, and it's a primal trauma in the life of the Jewish people. Now, why do I like this story? I like this story because when I started to chase it everywhere, I discovered that there are several versions of it in the Midrash itself, number one. Number two, I discovered that there's a version of this story in the Quran, which is interesting to me because it shows that Islam is as fervently radically, uncompromisingly monotheistic as Judaism is. I discovered that the Sufi poet Rumi wrote a poem based on this. I have carved idols enough to beguile every person. An idol without color and scent arrived. My hand was put out of action by him. Seek another master for the shop of idol making. I have cleared the shop of myself I have thrown away the idols, having realized the worth of madness. I have become free of thoughts. If an image enters my heart, I say, depart, you who lead astray. I found out that Avram in the legend was 13 years old. And I discovered that this is the origin of young people becoming bar mitzvah, and now bat mitzvah, at the age of 13. That the reference to 13 as the age of Jewish maturity really comes as a result of this story that is found in Jewish lore and not so much in Jewish law. So Abraham was a gifted Jewish child, which, of course, is redundant. So I want to explore with you the following notion. Number one, the story is about iconoclasm. It's about breaking the idols. And the second thing is that because Abraham shatters his father's idols, we have a wonderful paradox here, which is that we have a faith and a culture that is based on continuity, Lador Vador. And yet this religious culture begins with a radical act of discontinuity, with a boy breaking with his past and breaking with his father. I should also tell you that this story actually gave me a new hobby, and that is that I collect museum-quality ancient Near Eastern idols. 
that were dug up by archaeologists. I'm sure they're all absolutely authentic. I'm fascinated by this. The second thing I want you to understand about why I like this story is that this story is actually the story of an attitude. I would like to identify the essential Jewish attitude towards the world as being an attitude of breaking idols, which means that we stand up for truths that no one else stands up for. And we rebel against things that no one else rebels against. If you go to Jewish texts written in the time of Greece and written in the time of Rome, you would discover something. You would discover that ours was the only culture in the ancient world to actually say that there was something wrong with the mores of Greece and Rome. We were the only cultural dissenters until the early Christians. In one of my favorite stories in the Talmud, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi goes on a junket to Rome. Joshua ben Levi goes to Rome all the time. And he's walking through the streets of Rome, and he sees that the statues are dressed in fine, beautiful garments and covered with burlap so that they won't crack in the winter. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees a small child naked looking in the street for food. And he says that a culture that clothes statues and lets children run around naked cannot survive. And that, to me, is a classic piece of cultural rebellion, which makes it clear that our job as Jews is to stand up against the prevailing attitudes and ethos of the societies in which we live. That, by the way, is where I get the name of my blog from, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I actually would like to create another Jewish movement <clears throat> called Salmon Judaism, the courage to swim against the tide. And what has happened in America today is that as the Jews have become comfortable, we have become complacent. And we need to be shaken from our complacency about the culture in which we find ourselves. The thing I want you to notice about this idea that we stand up for things that no one else will stand up for and we rebel against things that no one else rebels against is that this ancient legend could have taken place in a temple. It could have taken place in a home. But the location of this legend is, let us remember, Terach's idol store. This takes place in a store. And so what you have here is the first Jewish critique of what we would call the contemporary idolatry of consumerism, which is judging yourself by your buying power. In Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Tennessee Williams 
tells us the dark, steamy story of the decline of the Pollitt family. And in one notable scene, Harvey Big Daddy Pollitt analyzes his wife's propensity for purchasing. The human animal is a beast that dies, and if he's got money, he buys and buys and buys. And I think the reason he buys everything he can buy is that in the back of his mind, he has the crazy hope that one of his purchases will be life everlasting, which it can never be. We buy as a hedge against the angel of death. To quote the journalist Chris Hedges, the smallness of our lives, the transitory nature of existence, the inevitable road to old age are what the idols of power, celebrity, and wealth tell us we can escape, but in fact, we cannot escape. I want to go to the third level and say that we not only stand up for truths that other people don't stand up for in a religious sense, this radical monotheism of ours, but this is a huge piece of Jewish secular culture as well. If you were to look at the people who created the modern world, I would say that there were four people who created the modern world. Three out of four of them are Jews. The only one who isn't is Chaim Darwin, Charles Darwin. <laughs> you have Marx, and you have Freud, and you have Einstein. Now, Marx challenged our way of looking at society. Freud challenged our way of looking at ourselves. Einstein challenged our way of looking at the cosmos. In each of these cases, they were iconoclasts. And I'll also say something about contemporary Jewish culture. Much has been written about what makes Jewish comedy particularly Jewish. And I'm going to trace modern Jewish comedy back to the Alta Zeta Lenny Bruce. I would say there's a straight line from Lenny Bruce to Woody Allen to Sarah Silverman, who, by the way, once said that the story of Broken Idols is her favorite Jewish story. And I would have to throw Jerry Seinfeld in there as well. I'll now up the ante for you and say this. To be Jewish means, based on this story, that at most you break the gods, but at the very least you struggle with God. A religious culture that invents a story like this is a culture that says that we don't take our own truths to be written in stone, that we live in that space between ourselves and God, and we fill that space with theological struggle. We are a culture that believes in interpretation, and we have never been comfortable with fundamentalisms. But the last thing I want to say to you is the hardest thing to hear. It is the hardest thing to understand but I think it is the mother load. When you have an attitude towards the world that this story presents, it means that you don't win popularity contests. We Jews have been the umpires 
of history. And anti-Semitism, in one sense, has been a way of saying, kill the ump. Or let me give you a pun. The Hebrew word for the mountain where the revelation takes place is Sinai, Sinai. And the pun is made by the ancient rabbis between Sinai, Sinai, and Sina, which is hatred. It was Sinai, it was Sinai that created the hatred. Because we say unpopular things. I'm going to bring you to a contemporary philosopher named George Steiner. George Steiner is an anti-Zionist writer of a particularly weird variety. It's not that he hates Israel. It's not that he hates Zionism. He actually believes that it's the role of the Jew to be a moral irritant and an insomniac. And in order for us to do that, we can't have our own state because it's our job to be spread among the nations to make everyone crazy. Frankly, I'd rather have a state, but that's okay. That's, that's just me. And he wrote a book which proves the following point. Most philosophers should not be writing novels. And he wrote a thriller called The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H. And in this book, Steiner imagines that the Mossad have found the aged Adolf Hitler in the jungles of South America. They arrest him. They bring him to trial. And he is allowed to take the stand in his own defense. And what does Steiner have Hitler say? I had to do it. I had to kill the Jews because the Jews invented conscience. Now I'm going to end with the following questions. I'm going to ask you to think for a moment about whether there are still idols out there. And I will say to you that the idol of consumerism is still very powerful. And in fact, I'm going to now suggest the following. Even though I am not traditionally Shabbat observant, to me, the aspect of Shabbat observance that is the most attractive is the notion that on Shabbat you don't go shopping. That one day a week you absent yourself from the commercial realm where you don't have to define yourself by what you do, which means what I can buy, which means what I can own. In other words, one day a week you, in some ways, surrender your economic power. But I would also say that, yes, materialism is a false god. In the Jewish world, ritual and Jewish law can be idols. If I want to be really provocative, I can say that our Jewish institutions can become idols when they become more important than the messages that they deliver. When we think that those structures were ordained from on high and that we have programmatic and governance structures that date back to the 1930s, when we think that our young people will never question those structures, or if they question those structures, it means they must be disloyal Jews. I'm going to end with the following joke. 
Mrs. Goldberg lives in the Bronx, in New York. And her son, Herbie, decides that he wants to enter the military and to go to officer training school. He goes to Fort Benning, Georgia. He calls his mother and says, Mom, I'm graduating in a couple weeks. I want you to come down and be there for the graduation ceremony. So she takes a bus down to Fort Benning, Georgia, along with all of her friends. She's sitting in the reviewing stands. She sees his squad come out. They're all dressed in white. They look wonderful. And she sees all of the officers who've just graduated in her son's squad marching to the left. And Herbie is marching to the right. So she turns to her friends and she says, this is so wonderful. I'm so proud of him. He's the only one who's doing it right. And I'm going to suggest to you that throughout the history of the world, when the nations have marched in one direction and we've marched in the other, there have been times when we are the only ones who have been doing it right. Thank you very much. Awesome. Uh, question. Um, <clears throat> How do we teach this to kids? How do we teach this to Jewish kids? What are the midot? What are the character traits that we want our students, our children to exercise uh, to cultivate this type of uh, approach to the world? I, I lie awake at night, Shmuley, worrying about this. I can't give those midot, those character traits, Hebrew names. I think if I could invent one out of whole cloth, it would be in some ways to ask ourselves the following question. Do we teach our kids, yes, to, to want more, but to also be happy with what they have? Do we teach our kids to question? Do we teach our kids not to define themselves by their spending power? Mm -hmm. It starts with bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. I think that if we take seriously the idea that Avram was 13 years old when he broke his father's idols, then we might say to our kids, it's time for you to show social responsibility and to stand up for your truths. Now, I'm going to say something about what's going on in America today. I'm going to say that the single largest act of iconoclasm in American history is taking place before our eyes, and it's being done by kids who are 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And I'm talking about the response to gunolatry, the idolatry of the weapon. And these are kids who are marching. As we speak, by the way, on March 24th, they're going to be marching for their lives. They're reclaiming this idea. So I think that this is the cultural moment in American history where we can bring this forward. Well, right now, what has uh, sparked that interest? Parkland. There's part, not, not, that, not just Parkland, but just like in the greater culture. What has been happening politically or socially that now after years of, I mean, there's been years, I mean, there's been Columbine, there's been Virginia Tech, there's been Newtown. And at each of those events, there was a call for something, and not much happened. 
But why, what about this particular? Ah. Uh, this particular ah. instance where. AJ, I'm glad you asked. Where, uh, <laughs> where something, uh, I, know, I know there's like, we're not going to take it anymore, but what's the push? So let me say something that I've never said publicly. In the wake of the horror at Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut, when toddlers were killed, one of the saddest, most poignant thing about toddlers is that they have friends who are toddlers. What I mean by that is they have friends who have no more power than they have. Number two, while things should have changed after Newtown, they didn't because of the sociological context in which we found ourselves. It's a beautiful community. It's an exurban community. It borders on the rural. And as such, was a little bit off the mattering map. If you know Connecticut geography, if this had happened in Greenwich or Stamford or Westport, it would have been a lot different. And that brings us to Parkland. Parkland is in Florida. And that is a place that is central in the American narrative. It's also central in the American Jewish narrative. It happened in a place that is, in some ways, a growing Jewish community, an affluent community, where the kids were all going to be going to good schools, with parents who are incredibly verbal, and the needle went into the red zone. And that's what happened. I'm going to tell you a story that is going to move you. The superintendent of schools in Broward County, Florida, got up and he said, for years we have made debate and public speaking the core of what we do, not only in the public schools, but it's also true in the private schools. I have more kids in my synagogue, Temple Solel in Hollywood, Florida, who are involved in rigorous aerobic debate than involved in rigorous aerobic sports. And then he said, and I never knew why. In other words, he never understood why it was that the schools were training kids for debate as rigorously as they had been doing. They thought it was so that the kids would win on debating teams. They never knew that they were training kids to stand up to Senator Rubio and to go to Tallahassee and to scream for their lives. How amazing is that? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.